Okay. Months ago, we did an episode that was related to Unix history. We talked about Unix and Linux. Uh, that was a part one of our journey through the Unix operating systems. Now we do the volume two, which is going to be about many other different versions of Unix that are apart from the original Unixes that came out in the 60s, 70s, and the Linux, which became a, a thing afterwards. So today we're going to talk about the Next, HBUX, SunOS, Solaris, Spikes, whatever, that doesn't really matter. Uh, with most of them, we do have some experiences, with some of them we don't, but we've seen them in action or uh, followed their development and how they got integrated into other products. So let's have a discussion about those. Uh, again, this is the uh, ep new episode of That IT Show podcast. Let's roll the intro and start the conversation. Okay, okay. Which, which one you want to start talking about? I want to start talking about neither Minix. one. Neither one. <laughs> of course. Of course. Uh, what I want to talk about is the Unix philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk, uh, since we just, in this universe, we just finished talking about the OS2. So I want In this to, universe. In this universe. So I want to... Uh, mention some things that uh, are pretty, pretty important when it comes to design operating systems. Okay. And this is that the operating system can be designed or... What a strange idea. It can be organically grown as uh, Windows uh, has usually what, like done. a plant? Yes. So basically you throw ideas at the developers and then just throw it in the operating system as soon as the operating system is uh, running. And I think this is one of those things that we don't, uh, we don't uh, remember that what Microsoft did okay. didn't have an idea when it started. It was started as a spin-off of another people's idea. Then they got people Multiple from... Multiple ideas. Yes. Then they got the people who did VMS. Okay. And they, they uh, created a mess out of everything that was uh, on the table. Okay. And the Unix, when it was initially uh, designed, so in the 69, mm -hmm. being 1969, uh, this was uh, the operating system that was intended to be a completely new operating system that would be independent of the hardware. Okay. But the first idea wasn't even an operating system. They wanted to create a game. Really? Yes. Okay, I didn't know this. So Rich, uh, basically, uh, Thompson and Ritchie uh, tried to do um, uh, a game on the PDP-7. Oh, I actually, I did really read about this. And okay. they were trying to do it in assembly. And then they tried to say, okay, uh, this is going to be uh, something that requires the things that are required by a game. So you need to wait to talk to the hardware, you need to wait to display things, you need to wait to get input from the user and so on and so on and so on. So they created a different, what would be called, called modules today, mm -hmm. but were called uh, functions back way then, that enabled you to talk to the computer. Okay. And then they turned it into a uh, version, uh, Unix version one that was uh, done in 1971. Okay. And this was the idea that uh, had a background. And the reason why I'm talking about the background is because when they started the design, okay. they decided to, to keep it to certain standards and certain ideas and to try to create everything that is designed in the Unix to keep it uh, uniform. And by mm -hmm. uniform, I mean to conform to certain ideas. Um, some of the ideas, you, you can take a look at them, uh, there are different interpretations of those, but some of them are the same wherever you look. So first thing is that you are going to have one program that is going to do one taste thing. And it's do going it to properly. do it well, uh, or sometimes it's, it is called keep it simple and stupid or keep it simple and uh, keep it simple and running, whatever. But the idea is that if you have an application, for example, LS that is used to uh, display the number, the files in the on the file system, it can have as many options as it wants to but they should be related to displaying the uh, files on the file system. It, it shouldn't be also uh, archiver, uh, 
I don't know, uh, able to uh, open the archive, save the archive, uh, display files and so on and so on. This is the thing that is happening is in Windows. As soon as you have a uh, working, uh, working application, suddenly it becomes boltware because the developer doesn't want to stop. He wants to continue uh, adding features to his application. And in Unix, this is usually uh, frowned upon. People say, okay, is your application right now the ideal way to display the number of files, whatever? Yes, stop. Mm -hmm. Good example is WC, word count. word count. Okay. Word count is able to count the words, the lines, uh, let, the bytes, lines, the characters. Letters, characters, that's it. It doesn't try to do anything else other than this. The next thing that they, uh, they decided to do is that uh, the files and the applications are going to communicate between each other using uh, text. Okay. So if your file, if your application is trying, is going to output something, it shouldn't be formatted too much. Okay. And the idea is that if you, even if you're doing the format, you need to be uh, uh, as uniform as possible so that you enable other people to use their own programs and you can, you are able to uh, forward the data that your application is outputting to the other applications so that you can actually uh, do something in the other application because the applications are going to be piped together. So uh, the result of one is going to be piped into another. Yes, but not as objects. Yes, not as objects, straight text mm -hmm. because everything else is a string. So everything produces a string so you can actually count on text being text. Uh, you always should expect that your application should be able to output something to another application. Okay. And also you should be uh, thinking about uh, using your application as something that can accept the input of another application. Okay. Oh, sorry, or output of another application. So you should be able to accept text inputs, okay. not only from, from the person, but also from other applications. Okay. Because this design uh, enables you to uh, chain different applications one after the other and create something. Also, you should build and test every week. You okay. should break things, you should try things, and if something works, you should make it uh, happen as soon as possible. So they decided against testing, uh, con doing a continuous, pro uh, continuous, um, uh, uh, not, not, uh, is, the idea is uh, continuous integration is okay, but they were against uh, keeping applications in, in alpha and beta test for months. Okay. They said, okay, if something needs to be changed, change it. If mm -hmm. you remember back then when Linux was uh, had a problem with A out and then ELF, mm -hmm. uh, when they needed, decided to change the design or the um, internal structure of the uh, binary, they just did it. Yep, and both worked out of the box. Yes, and this was one of those things where uh, Windows would have tremendous problems trying to do this. .com is still a valid uh, application in Windows. Okay. And this is one of those things when backwards uh, compatibility doesn't make any sense. A lot of people would frown upon that, but yes. Uh, also, when you're doing something, uh, create tools. Create your own scripts, then use your scripts to do, uh, do things because you want to build uh, on your work and then you want to avoid repeating your work as, uh, as much as possible. Okay. Because you're going, you're going to be a better application man, uh, application designer in, the, uh, in this. You're going to be a better uh, system and architect and so on. Because you are creating your own tools, you know how to do these things. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to waste time on redoing things that you already did. You should be just upgrading your knowledge and creating new things. Uh, files should be stored as text if possible. Mm -hmm. So all the data should be stored in text. If you need to do something in binary, okay. but if possible, do it in text. Okay. And this is the reason why we have XML. And we have different versions of, uh, uh, yes, but it enables you to uh, create a structure that is basically a text file. Okay. And you can embed uh, images, you can embed other things, but you're also storing them as text files. So you don't uh, risk uh, trying to store it on a file system that doesn't understand how to store binary. Okay. Then portability over efficiency. If your application needs to be uh, written in such a way that it's going to be slower, and at the same time you want to run it on different architectures, do the application uh, so, so, it, it, so it, it is slow, but it runs. Okay. So that everything can be compiled. And this was um, extremely interesting back way then because the Unix wasn't designed for a particular architecture. 
They mm-hmm. started designing on one applica- one architecture. They uh, switched their uh, architectures a couple of times during the first 10 years. And the idea was that the Unix should be running on all of them mm-hmm. at the same time, if possible. So they were trying to rebuild things. Um, they were trying to rebuild things uh, while maintaining compatibility. And the only way to maintain compatibility is to be wise when you're designing application inside. And the uh, last thing is that this uh, that is going that is important and that was designed way back then is that you shouldn't be creating everything by yourself from the scratch. You should be uh, trying to uh, build based on libraries and object files and everything else that you already have. So you should be able to talk to your colleagues. You should be able to reuse their code and try to create something new based on the old code. And it's open source. I think it was a a prototype what would later become an open source. Okay. Uh, The reason why they did it, because they didn't want to redo everything from scratch every time they started to do something. So the application would um, more or less uh, depend on the operating system uh, doing basic things, talking to the uh, hardware, talking to the processor, talking to the display, uh, getting input, getting output, and so on. And this is one of those things where... As long as we don't understand the uh, how things were working back way then, you don't realize why this was important. Okay. Uh, because the first version of Unix included something as uh, uh, things like file system. Before that, you stored information on the disk by just referencing the sectors. Okay. So you need the file system. You needed a way to uh, create processes. Mm-hmm. You needed something that is going to be handling processes. They decided that this is going to be a multi-user system. So they decided you're going to be able to um, uh, create separate uh, regions of memory that, is going to, that are going to run separate processes at the same time. So it all, all that took enormous amount of... What we call design. What we call design and uh, enormous amount of um, great engineering. Yeah, forethought. Forethought, because, because you didn't have anything to build upon. Mm-hmm. You were starting from scratch. Yep. And this is the reason why uh, I think that the 60s or late 60s are probably the most formative um, uh, years when it comes to operating systems. I agree. Because what you had back way back, back then uh, was you had operating systems that were specifically tailored for uh, one specific computer, not architecture, but computer. Then you had the idea of Unix that was trying to uh, get cross-compatibility uh, done. And also you had a different kind of operating systems, a uh, system that was uh, designed with a particular function in mind. And I'm talking about Apollo guidance computer and the derivatives that came after it. Okay. Because... Special use case computers. Yes, but these special use case computers are in use uh, uh, up until today. Yeah. And uh, I was just, uh, a couple of days ago, I was watching um, a documentary that was trying to explain how Apple guidance computer was important for the history of the computing because I it was one well. of the most, uh, the, the one about NASA and the fly-by-wire. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing is that probably one of the things why we have today's design in the uh, airplane industry Mm-hmm. is the uh, direct result of what uh, NASA and uh, MIT did when they designed the computer. And you must remember that they designed the computer uh, from 60 to, uh, 1962, 63 to uh, 1967. Mm-hmm. And we are still using it, what, 60 years later? Mm-hmm. And the ideas are still fresh because they are a product of a, a lot of forethought and good design. Also good optimization mm-hmm. because they understood where the problems lay and they didn't try to do what uh, developers are more inclined to do today. And this is to say, okay, my design is bad, but if I wait enough, uh, I'm going to solve the problem by uh, sheer hardware power. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. One of the one of the cancers of computer science nowadays, or the application development in particular. Yeah, you're on the money. I'm just going to put just going to put to put one thing uh, out there, and this is uh, when they were designing the Apple guidance computer. They understood that they are going to have 
extremely limited amount of memory that's going to be read-only memory. They're going to have extremely uh, limited memory that's going to be uh, able to write and to uh, keep some information and in it. And it was unreliable as well. So had to design for that too on a hardware level. They had designed. They had to design on the hardware level without actually knowing how reliable it's going to be, because they didn't know if the computer, when it passed through the uh, uh, belts uh, surrounding the Earth, is the uh, radiation going to interfere with the computer's functioning. Mm -hmm. So they were trying to design something that they didn't know. They didn't have the entire risk calculation about, and didn't they have? extreme amount of unknowns that couldn't be checked mm -hmm. before the computer itself had to function. Mm -hmm. So what they did is something that would be, uh, that is completely out of the question today. They tried to, or they, they did uh, create uh, parts of the memory that could be patched into. Mm -hmm. So they could overlap parts of the memory based on what they needed so that they could actually uh, replace uh, the uh, read-only memory with uh, memory that could be written uh, later. And it could be patched, patched through based on your uh, current um, requisites for the mission that they were doing. Also, they had another problem. And this problem is completely uh, out of the question today. And this is the problem where you had to create the application that would work months, sometimes years before it would be used. And you couldn't make an error. Yeah, it had because, to be extremely precise. Because the application it had, had to be woven into physical memory. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't change it later. You could. But then you had to use those patches that I was mentioning. Uh, it wasn't Apollo based on some kind of a Unix RTOS or something like that? No, it was a completely, completely different uh, idea. The idea was that it, has, it had an executive. So it had a what would we call kernel today. Mm -hmm. It had processes that had to run. Mm -hmm. It was able to run uh, concurrent. I think it did six or seven processes concurrently. They had priorities. And if the computer wasn't able to run on all of those, it would be able to reset itself and then continue running. Yeah. And this is what saved a couple of missions, including the first one, the, uh, the first landing on the moon, because the computer kept resetting itself. But since the design was so good, it was able to continue running. Mm -hmm. And the idea of a computer being at the same time, uh, a, a computer is setting itself at the same time as running normally, is completely mm. off by today's standards. Yeah. yeah, it's impossible to do. Actually, to, to kind of patch into what you were saying, so good intro, very good, very good idea. Wasn't <laughs> aware that you were going to go this way. But I want to patch into a, a thought that you had in which you voiced a couple of minutes ago, which is that everything needed to be compatible, various different architectures. And it needed to run without additional hassle and that a lot of, uh, let's say, forethought was given to the design of application from a perspective of compatibility. And I have a completely opposite example of that from that era and era afterwards, actually. Uh, and it is Unix based. Yes. If you remember when we started going to our old college, we mm -hmm. were using SunOS Solaris machines for labs and for our student things and whatnot we'd have. We had three or four of them. One of them was managed by students. And at least a couple of times when I was there, uh, it had to be reinstalled. Okay. Yes. How did the reinstallation of uh, SunOS Solaris of those generations work? Just for the short explanation. You use the CD from which you deployed the kernel and the basic set of utilities, which included C, CC specifically. Yes. Then you used CC to compile GCC. And then you use GCC and all of the libraries that you can then compile with it to compile everything else. Yes. Okay? Which took days. Yes. You see that that's a hassle. That's completely against the philosophy that you said. I'm mentioning it as uh, as an outlier, not to diminish your your uh, principles, which were completely correct. Yes, but it's not. It's not. Uh... It's not that they weren't following the uh, Unix philosophy. It was the result. Extreme implementation of it. No, no, no. But it was the result of the amount of work that was already done uh, by the time the Solaris went to the market. Because if you remember, uh, back way then when the Linux came out, the first versions of Linux weren't able to do uh, kernel modules. So you had to recompile the kernel when you started. Yes. And this was just the thing that you needed to do because nobody expected you to uh, get binaries by themselves. Normal distribution of uh, distribution of uh, applications was done in C. You got source files and that was it. And 
this was the result of when the Unix itself was created. It was an extremely small and compact piece of code written in assembly. Then they created uh, a programming language. So mm -hmm. the C came later mm -hmm. because they wanted a high level language in, in order to be able to do something in Unix. And then to what, make it easier for themselves as well, yes. while not sacrificing too much. And then uh, they uh, created uh, the manuals because this is also important mm -hmm. because uh, an operating system and a completely new programming language without any uh, support in any manual doesn't make sense. Yes. And then they uh, were able to create and distribute the version that was actually um, uh, commercial. Okay. And this is Unix 6. Mm -hmm. It took them six versions in order to get to that point. And okay. uh, also there is a version seven that it had used different shells. Okay. So that the uh, IO library and the user interface and everything else was standardized and it was decoupled from the operating system. Yep. So these were different mild milestones, but if you think about it, those milestones were important mm -hmm. because they defined different things that you had to do on your computer. They were also trying to uh, solve the problems that they had because, okay. for example, uh, using a shell makes sense only if you have a, a problem because you have multiple users and your multiple users require different settings inside their own uh, environment. Or they use different shell uh, settings and shell, let's say, functionalities of different shells to program shell scripts. Yes, but because but, declaration of variables and some other things were a little bit different. Yes, but the environment is shells. a problem. Yeah, because if you want, if you want to have an environment that is separate from mine, we need to have separate sessions. Mm -hmm. Once you uh, start to have separate sessions, it makes sense to create something called a shell because this is your shell, this is my shell. Then you can have different sessions for a single user and so on. Okay. So. These things didn't come up as uh, somebody actually sued, uh, uh, sat down and designed it, but it came up organically, oh, but then it got upgraded. Uh, up, uh, it, then it got included into the entire structure, unlike some other operating systems that basically just slap it on and uh, try, to, uh, try to solve this problem in the user space. Mm -hmm. Because this had to be integrated into the, into the kernel space, and this was something that Okay, that, this is something that actually designed what the kernel and user space were. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the Unix was, from my perspective, the most interesting technologically from 69 to 80. Uh, then later versions were just uh, big upgrades, but upgrades. Uh, first Unixes or Unices were technology advancements that were uh, amazing. Then it just went, uh, stayed, uh, stayed um, I wouldn't say the same, but the technology advancements st st stopped being so uh, big. They just did uh, incremental upgrades and this was logical. Not, this, is, this is logical. And I think that the next big thing that happened in the Unix world was where the, when the uh, graphical interface was in, uh, introduced. Okay, X11 and whatnot. Okay, okay, okay. So let's say that the first one that I remember using um, for a significant portion of time was actually SunOS slash Solaris because we had it in college. We also had the University Academic Center, which had a whole bunch of them too. Uh, we got access to them by being students in the, you know, uh, being educated uh, in uh, the uh, public space. And that's where personally I cut my teeth as a Unix, let's say, administrator. I switched to Linux, let's say, six months later or, or, or whatnot after that. I remember Solaris for a couple of reasons, and that memory has stuck with me afterwards, and I have a couple of them actually in my garage, the ultras that I would like to make, make them run again because they deserve it. First thing that, generally speaking, got to me, uh, or that I really remember about Solaris is that although we reinstalled it over the course of seven years on those student computers twice, it was actually very robust. It worked really well, it didn't crash, and it handled oftentimes like dozens and dozens of users, and we're talking about mid nineties now, where we didn't have multi-core CPUs or the CPU power that we had nowadays. People leaving screens, downloading, 
using graphical interfaces because it used to have that as well. But back way then, graphical user interfaces were standardized in another way in which they were using XMDCP. So you were basically had a central server from which you loaded the uh, graphical user interface and you had a UI terminal, which was GUI based, that loaded the environment from there after you logged in. And we had well, six, eight of those terminals in the, in the lobby of the college. And we used those for years, connected to the very same one server so those graphical user interfaces took a heck of a lot of CPU time and especially memory. And of course, network was being used a lot for it, but it worked rather well. Yes, but the idea, even the idea that uh, if you think about today's world, the idea of having an operating system that is going to be stable and running for days and months while being used by 20 or 30 users at the same time. And harassed 24 uh, seven. Uh, those users are going to be uh, wildly different in the amount of knowledge they have uh, about using the operating okay. system. So they're going to create uh, different problems. For example, I had a colleague of mine who was trying to learn how to program in C. And he wanted to um, create a client-server application that is going to be based on sockets and so on and so on. Okay. What he did is that uh, uh, he created a server application that is going to listen to the socket. And what he did is he said, while well, zero, uh, wait on socket. Okay, not the best idea in the world. And this actually didn't crash uh, the entire system because mm -hmm. the system itself was able to uh, recover from it and say, okay, this is the, what the user did. This is stupid. All the users are going to get uh, limited access to the processor, but the operating system has its own priorities, so it's going to continue running. Even today, you can break uh, some of the operating systems today if you do something like this. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those things where uh, the design was above all. The design was able to keep up with the users and with the, the technical uh, knowledge or lack of technical knowledge of the user. It's not only that. Back way then, while, while you're on the, on the topic of that, PAM modules were heavily used for these sorts of circumstances and you could set PAM limits. Yes. Module can be used for this and they were heavily used on these machines. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the idea, the concept is very simple. By using uh, system modules, you could say this user can, for example, have this amount of context, context being CPU time, Cycles, processes, amount of memory, whatever, and that user cannot get more. Which means that even back way then, we're talking again, mid-90s, you could partition the system into multiple different sub-environments, which didn't crash with one another. Basically, that's a quality of service mechanism, if you look at it from today's perspective. And that worked beautifully. That worked really well. And uh, Linux has the same principle, same modules, same idea for configuration, which was evolved afterwards. But still, I mean, we're talking again, mid-90s, 30 years ago, we already had that. And hence the reason why those machines, which were abused 24-7, literally, because the college was open 24-7, uh, the, those machine machines almost never crashed. That just didn't happen all that yes, much. Yes, the crash, the crash was something. Uh, also, uh, we need to take into consideration things like uh, the hardware. Mm -hmm. The disks were... SCSI all uh, of them. Were, they were SCSI, but at the same time, they were slow compared to any standard of today. Yes. Uh, but they worked. Because Ima the SCSI imagine, was designed in such a way that the disk would work. Imagine if today you try to, let's say you go to eBay, buy a computer of, let's say, PC from that era, which would be, let's say, 1995, that would be uh, the, the uh, let's say, 486 to Pentium era. Uh, installing Linux on top of it, logging 20, 30 users on, and then let them run Chrome, every single one of them. I mean, back way then, Netscape Navigator, who cares? I mean, the machine would crash instantly. It would be slow to a halt in a second. Yes, but the thing was that uh, way back then, also the applications understood that they're going to be running uh, extreme multi-user uh, environments, and they didn't try to uh, act as they, they like they own the entire hardware. It's not only that. I would say, it, again, system configuration was done in a correct way, but also remember that we are talking about the risk CPUs. Those uh, in those days, risk CPUs were the bomb. Yes, but more about that in another episode. I, I wasn't actually uh, leading to that conclusion. It just popped into my mind that oh, uh, Spark CPUs, all of them were risks. Basically. Let me now let me now just go uh, into another thing that I uh, liked about the early Unix systems, and this was the switch to graphical user interface. Okay, because it actually came in the eighties. Mm -hmm. uh, 
during the okay end of the 60s uh when the unix was just getting started during the entire 70s during the entire decade the systems were text-based yes then graphical interfaces came into uh, into um, uh, in, uh, into light, and the thing that happened is that uh, different companies that were producing uh, Unixes or they had their own flavor of Unix, uh, they introduced their own version of a graphical interface. Okay. The most common one was the, the one that was done uh, uh, that is called the X, mm -hmm. done by MIT and then uh, redone by uh, guys at uh, DEC and so on. And this was one of the things that also redefined the framework on how a computer should look like. Mm -hmm. Because when we're talking about object operating systems and the... the, the we need to also understand that the concept of a window wasn't known back then. It had to be invented. Mm -hmm. The concept of the, of the mouse had to be invented. Mm -hmm. um, there was also a separate war going on called the Connectors Conspiracy, if you remember it. Yes. Uh, when different vendors were trying to uh, do the same thing uh, using wildly different connectors because they were trying to sell their own hardware and make uh, other people When the lock-in, basically. When the lock-in, and so uh, it came down to the thing that you couldn't use a keyboard from one system to the, on another. Yeah. Or you couldn't use a monitor on different systems. You couldn't use a mouse on different systems. You couldn't use any of the uh, external hardware that is normally today, normally compatible with everything else. And this is one thing. Uh, then uh, people realized that they need to do something. And when the uh, 90s came in, they started uh, trying to create compatible systems between each other. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because the... Um, companies, especially the universities, mm -hmm. uh, started or suddenly uh, got themselves stuck with different architectures, different computers from different eras. And some of them were intended for to use uh, to be used on, on, on some project, some intended for to be used on another project. And the idea was to ensure intercompatibility. Mm -hmm. uh, if you had, I don't know, a deck, a Sun, and uh, I don't know, an IBM, mm -hmm. You had to have a common factor in order to be able to work on uh, all of those while at the same time connected to a single uh, terminal. Yeah. And this had to be done in some, in some way. So first, uh, talent and uh, text-based uh, terminals Our login, were, uh, yes. were created. And then the same thing happened with the graphical ter uh, terminals. Mm -hmm. And then the different environments came. So the view visual user environment, uh, the CDE, the uh, Enlightenment, the GNOME, and so on and so on and so on. Yeah. So different things happened. Actually, there, there were a couple of commercial versions of X-Windows as well. Metro accelerated, but yes. that was more on Linux. Yes, and uh, the interesting thing is that uh, X, or the uh, graphical interface, uh, lived to this day. Yeah. The Valent tried to do uh, away with uh, X, but X is still alive. Mm -hmm. You can even get implementations for it on the uh, on uh, regular Windows, and you can run X applications from a Unix server on your uh, Windows and, uh, yeah. uh, for, for free, basically. Hence, hence X, XDMCP protocol. Yes. So the, the, the thing is fantastic. that... Fantastic. So, but this came out of standardization mm -hmm. and trying to stick to the rules. And this is one of those things where I don't understand why Microsoft chose the other way to do it. Let me interject with something uh, of a story of personal uh, nature, professional nature, actually. The first job that I did before you and I became less than competitors by working okay. for different magazines, I mean permanent job, was for a company that does simulation tools for a variety of automotive companies for suspension, for whatnot, based, in, based here in Zagreb. Their environment was based around a buttload of Unix systems, but not one of them only. We had a bunch of Linuxes, we had a bunch of HPUXs, we had a bunch of Sun machines, and my personal favorite, we had a bunch of Silicon Graphics machines. Okay. Uh, we had a mutual authentication system, LDAP-based. LDAP existed back in 2003. You know, it existed way before then as well. So everybody could log into any of these systems and use whatever they wanted in a shell 
first point, easily, secure shell, talent, whatever. And second point, you could uh, basically, they had Linux-based uh, uh, PCs for development. You log in, you do, uh, uh, let's say, X remote session to any one of these different systems. We could easily start any application from any of those and do basically remote what Microsoft does with remote app nowadays and has been doing for the past whatever amount of years. XDMCP existed way before that. But the beauty of that was that you could have a simulation tool from Silicon Graphics loaded on your screen. You could have another different simulation tool from HPUX loaded on your screen on the same computer. They worked beautifully. I very much remember that because I was aware of XDMCP way before that and used it extensively. That's, that's the usage model that we had with those Solaris terminals as well. But it was the first time that I saw it outside of the academic environment being implemented in a real production environment by a company doing some serious business. And that also stuck with me all the, for all of those years, 20 years afterwards we're talking now, uh, because we, we were very happy with that environment and the way in which it, it was easy to manage and administer. We had, myself and one other guy, we were doing the administration and system engineering, and it was working beautifully. I mean, no problems whatsoever. And this is why this is why I was so uh, when I became old enough to realize that the main difference between what uh, X did and what Microsoft did with this uh, remote desktop protocol, when I realized the differences, it was completely puzzling to me. Why did Microsoft, at the time when they were actually expecting that the uh, amount of work done remotely on the machines? is going to be much, 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 much more uh, interesting to people. Mm -hmm. uh, why did they choose a protocol that is way, way, way less optimized than the, what X was? It, it didn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me. They uh, reinvented today. the wheel yet again. But, but they didn't reinvent the wheel. The wheel was... Uh, 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 block, uh, it, was it was basically... Uh, square wheel. Uh, square, square <laughs> because what they did is they decided that they're going to send bitmaps over the, uh, over the network. And they are going to create something that is going to be bandwidth, uh, limited by bandwidth. And X was able to function over extremely limited uh, network bandwidth, mm -hmm. extremely limited links, because it was designed in when those links were normal. I actually used uh, X when I, uh, in 1995, tail end of 1995, when I started using Linux, I quickly understood the way in which the uh, graphical terminals work. And I started uh, using the uh, X applications from those servers that we yes. had in college, uh, from uh, my Linux computer at home being logged in via an analog modem. Yes, it would work. It would. It was. It was slow to start to for to, to get to the application via network. But after that, and this is this is one of those. Just things reminded me of where, that. That was kickass. Where it does when it doesn't make sense, what happened later? Mm -hmm. But let's go back. Let's go back to the Unix because you know you you have your own. Uh, I want just to uh, mm. put a timeline into perspective and uh, try to understand where the Unix came from. Yeah, that's... It came from the idea of people who were trying to create something that would enable them to run a game. So mm -hmm. this is a pretty pretty normal um, motivation for people of, uh, way back then, mm -hmm. because people wanted to play on hardware uh, that, that is expensive. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, I started our discussion about Solaris and SunOS. Uh, we talked about some of the memories that we have of using that, uh, and uh, SunOS and Solaris afterwards were very successful in. Uh, especially in one uh, horizontal market, which was universities. Yes. It was super popular all over the world. We were, our college was one amongst thousands of them. Uh, those and were- Solaris, Solaris was, way back then, was uh, basically a synonym for the internet. And not only that, it afterwards, it was developed to trusted Solaris and it was used by a variety of military services and whatnot prior to, to for- uh, The only other vendor that came close to it was DEC. Oh, uh, OSF and stuff like that. Yes, but I mean, the, the, the digital. digital Unix. The, yeah, okay. Basically, the digital. Actually, when you when we were while we were on the topic of that, did you have a chance to use any of those digital Unixes? Uh, not not for a while and not for too long. Okay. When... So I I have I have limited knowledge and limited uh, memories to connect to those. Okay, I have loads. 
uh, as I was lucky enough to use them. First and foremost, if you remember back in the, in the days of early internet in Croatia, when our national telecom started offering internet services, they also had, um, they created one uh, Unix machine that was available to the public, which you could use through a text menu. David? That, huh? David? No, no. It was called something else. It was OSF-based, OSF-1-based. Okay. Uh, I used that. Uh, I didn't have the account, but a couple of my colleagues and companies that I worked for uh, as a side gig did. So I had a chance to play with this. Actually, the, the guy who did that and managed that in the, our Croatian Telecom later on become my, became my student for loads of Linux courses, which was funny as hell. Digital Unix, though, uh, yeah, I used that one heavily. Uh, I was lucky enough when I uh, got to second year of college. Uh, you remember, in the second year of our college included electronics one and two. After I passed those two exams, the department that handles those courses got a huge donation by digital, which was my first introduction to the amazing world of uh, digital alpha. Later models, which were much more, let's say, much faster and much better done visually, hardware-wise, speed-wise, whatever. So I had uh, uh, one of the professors uh, selected me and my uh, my best friend, who passed away sadly a couple of years ago, to uh, manage those systems as a part of the department's idea of starting to do simulation work for various chips and whatnot. So that what electronics was all about. So I spent the better part of the next two years working on a dual boot system based on multiple disks. Uh, the first boot was Digital Unix. The other one was uh, we had a Linux version for Digital Alpha back then, which worked really well. I think it, uh, there, at some point I installed Red Hat on it as well. I think Red Hat had some early versions of their Linux prior to commercialization of Red Hat uh, that worked on Alpha. So I have vivid memories of using those systems. Uh, they were amazing pieces of hardware and Digital Unix was the bomb. It worked very well, excellent UI. Loads of uh, engineering applications were done for Digital Unix as a platform and for Alpha as the underlying hardware platform. There were quite a few supported accelerators even back then for those things. And we were drawing chips in that and compiling chips, all of the things that people nowadays do when you're doing that, you know, in various simulation tools. So, yeah, the, the, the Digital Unix was a really good product. Yes, and the, uh, I think that what we are trying to say here is that we need to understand that the circumstances of the market way back then mm -hmm. uh, dictated that uh, you could actually tell that uh, what companies were trying to do, they were trying to create something that would uh, be applicable for certain no, no, use no, cases. No, 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 no. Uh, I wouldn't say applicable, I would say a competitive. Uh, in pricing when you compared price per seat for mm -hmm. a person who would be doing something because the uh, personal computers were trying to, were, were just coming into view yeah they weren't popular up until 1981 82 when uh, the uh, market exploded with uh, ZX spectrum with uh, different 6602 uh, uh, based computers and so on schneiders um, ataris and so on but Companies, uh, the companies that were creating Unixes and created big systems started to form an image probably somewhere in the subconscious that they are going to be competing with those small machines. Mm -hmm. So they had to create or they had to break down the price per user for a company. Mm -hmm. So they were trying to compete on the small computer market uh, with machines that didn't have or had enough power to power uh, hundreds of users and they had that uh, had and could be used over the terminals. I would say that that's exactly the reason why Sun Microsystems existed. Exactly that metaphor, because they were heavily present in the academic market with their hardware and software, and they were the workstation type of uh, computers and servers. They did not have personal computers per se back in those days, you know, 90s, 20, uh, 2000s. Exactly in that respect, the, uh, those, those machines were used as either workstations for engineers to do something, or programmers as well, or they were used as servers to handle certain infrastructure. It was the same with Digital Unix and the Alpha systems and HPUX for HP workstations and, and servers and many other 
uh, let's say different uh, uh, different platforms that were uh, present back then. Everyone, uh, every single company tried to carve out a piece of market for themselves and played on that market heavily. Sun for workstation servers, mostly HPX uh, played at the same market and whatnot. But HP, uh, the uh, the uh, Sun uh, Microsystems was quite successful with it, although they were super expensive. And quite, the, they wait, wait, wait a second. And the second part of that was integration with additional products. I saw on uh, with my own two eyes what it means to have a digital Unix machine based on Alpha hooked up to a Tektronics oscilloscope and various other components, which was available back then. We're talking, this is prior 2000. This is 1998-99. So there, there were other types of ecosystems built around those products that didn't necessarily just involve some kind of a specific framework for, I don't know, uh, doing a application that's going to do uh, word processing. It was much more involved than that and much more integrated than that, even back then. But you, uh, when you said that uh, Sun was expensive, it was, but it was nothing compared to IBM. Yeah, I know, I know. And That's because, what they played uh, be, on. Because Sun was considered a cheap alternative to IBM. Yeah. It was cost, uh, the cost was tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars, but IBM was uh, costing in millions of dollars. Yeah. Also, IBM was pushing heavily uh, with the mainframes. They still are doing and, that. And, but yes, they are still doing it, but uh, the market of the mainframes is more or less the same as it was uh, way back then when they said that uh, the entire world is going to be needing uh, not more than seven computers or whatever. Yeah, yeah, was. For sure. Now the, the, the world doesn't need more than a couple of hundred of mainframes because the mainframes are, they are... For We're running a, everything critical. Yes, they are do, uh, in, uh, important for things that um, were uh, interesting, but IBM didn't position itself well when it came to uh, servers. Same thing happened to HP with HPUX, same, exactly the same thing. They went uh, in, the, in the wrong direction, targeted um, uh, more, I, I would say a little bit more towards vendor lock-in than towards yes. uh, many other uh, aspects of the market. Same thing at the end of the day happened to uh, Sun Microsystems before, prior to being sold to blah, 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 and then Oracle. So th that's actually uh, a testament to, uh, the, to the market which evaluated all of those options, took them for a while, and then saw that also the PC market went in the other direction to be available to everybody and started grading those systems, workstation, server market systems on a similar scale, which brought uh, compatibility back to the fore. Now, let's just, before we finish, because we are going to be finishing... Uh, yeah, we still have 10, 15 minutes. Yes, but well, before we finish, uh, because this is going to take us 10 to 15 minutes to, to start. Okay. We haven't mentioned one uh, big elephant in the room. BSD? No, VMS. VMS, okay. We forgot the deck was, or we didn't forget, but uh, the deck had it, well, its own baseline. Mm -hmm. And uh, it had VMS that was uh, interesting. Okay, later it was interesting because it was running on the alpha, yes. but uh, it was also interesting because it's, because it was the only viable alternative to uh, commercial systems when it came to big distributed systems. Okay. Uh, you had a terminal, you could run either uh, Unix or VMS, mm -hmm. and that was it, unless you were running something uh, that IBM brought to the market on the mainframe market, and they had a couple of things that uh, you could run. But the thing was that VMS was in itself also an extremely interesting operating system. As we are about to find out soon enough. Yes. Okay, I agree. I never had the privilege of work, working on VMS, I'm afraid. That's something that I'm hoping that I'm going to rectify soon enough with some of the next episodes that we are going to do. But yes, you're completely correct. And VAXs and other architectures that used VMS are super important. And of course, the, the alpha. Yes, but the uh, uh, the VAX, the, uh, the the servers and the mobile servers, because I also have one of those. Uh, I'm going of to course. show you one of the uh, one of the episodes were something that was interesting by itself because it enabled even smaller companies to run uh, concurrent time sharing systems, and this was uh, more or less two two different types of uh, computing competing at mm -hmm. the same time. Either you try to do uh, dumb terminals and some kind of Unix VMS timeshare, 
Okay. Or you try to do um, smart terminals. Okay, let's not call them dumb, but they weren't but client computers that would then be connected into networks. Thin clients or something like that. Kind or, of. Or an IBM PC. Mm -hmm. And then you didn't have the networking, but you had enough uh, power on your desktop to be able to do basic tasks. Mm -hmm. So either you were trying to do everything extremely connected with the specifically dumb terminal, so the terminal couldn't do anything by itself, or you had enough power, but then the networking part wouldn't work as, as good. Okay. Just to mention, and it's a good thing that you mentioned VMS, because yes, I forgot about it, my bad. Uh, VMS still exists. Open yes. VMS is still being actively used by loads of people, uh, because at the end of the day, this is the digital legacy and whatnot. While we're on the subject of, of digital, and uh, this is going to be a, a topic of our next episode, if I forgot to mention something in one of our previous episodes, the fact that OS2 failed pisses me off heavily, okay? Nowhere near as much as I'm pissed off about the fact that Alpha failed. And, and re for reasons that are going to be apparent in some of the future episodes. VMS is like an outlier in that story. Yes. In a sense. And that's good because it's a, it's a good platform to do, to do a variety of different things on. The thing is that failure today is something that is sometimes hard to, hard to pinpoint. Correct. I'm going to just quickly step into today's world and ask you with this. Has the Raspberry Pi failed? No. But was it is was it what is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. So it didn't fail in terms of being still on the market, but it failed in every other aspect because it's way too expensive for its initial promise. Okay, it wasn't that expensive back then. But the other thing is that if you want to do anything useful with the Raspberry Pi, you suddenly are faced with the idea of either not uh, it it not being available, correct when you need it. Yep. And then For the, the past same couple time, of years, it's been horror. Yes, and, and, and at the same time, uh, the scarcity of the Raspberry Pi is because everybody wants to buy it. Okay. But I don't see that many people actually using it. Okay. I see a lot of stuff being done as a hobby on it, but let's call it a small office, home office production environment are not based on Raspberry Pis mm -hmm. because still the PCs are uh, cheaper when it comes to everything else. So, did the Raspberry Pi fail or not? Still think not, but I understand where you're going with this. And this is one of the things, it's hard to, uh, to say if the, I don't know, uh, has the Chrome failed? Has the Firefox failed? Mm -hmm. Firefox is right now losing uh, its market share uh, left and right. Mm -hmm. uh, Chrome is more or less one of the worst uh, browsers uh, out there. Then yet we still use them. Yes, and this is this is one of those things. We have come to a point where you can have a product that's being used by hundreds of millions of people and it can be considered a failure. Mm -hmm. And also you can have a product that's going to be used by tens of millions of, millions of people and then being, being considered a wild success. I would also, uh, to your point, add one other fact. Because of the way in which these things that we talked about today were designed from the ground up, be it in hardware, be it in software, because it was much more codependent design than what we do today, which is the strength of those products. I would say that all of the things that we mentioned, all of the OSs and all of the platforms that we mentioned as well, the echoes of those products, both in hardware and software, are still felt all the way through the IT industry. That means that those things were good products. And most of the, you know, you started with the principles of Unix and whatnot. Those principles still stand. Yes, and this is one of those things where uh, where I still uh, cannot get over what PowerShell did to the scripting. Oh, come on, don't go back to Microsoft. It's not the topic. Uh, yes, but I just, uh, when somebody uh, talks about uh, the philosophy, the uh, streams, the text files, the <laughs> input and output, and, and then... Microsoft comes barging in like a, a elephant in the glass uh, in the glass shop and says, "Okay, we are going to be doing this differently. How differently? We don't know, but we are going to be doing this differently." Okay, can I steer our conversation in another direction? No, no, I'm just going to stop with the basic Microsoft, but just okay. just to be noted. Okay, BSD. 
BSD is one of those rare things that where I completely fail to uh, understand why are people uh, still... Uh, raison d'être? Uh, uh, no, no, no raison d'être, but uh, the, why the people are still behind it while at the same time understand why people are still behind it. Yeah, it's a conundrum. As people love it. Mm-hmm. Religiously, oftentimes. Uh, FreeBSD is great in some particular usage scenarios. Like? Routers. Storage. ZFS. Uh, I would say routers. Uh, okay. But the, I think that the way they're handling the network is much better than uh, what, what was happening in the Linux. Okay, but Linux they are coming got closer to together, yes, to, yes, yes, generally yes, yes, speaking. Okay. And this is the one of the main reasons is because people in Linux have enough developers so that they can address the different things that they screwed up uh, the first Many time years around. years ago. The yeah. first time around or the second time around or the third time around. Third or fourth or fifth. Uh, with the TCP stack. Yeah, okay. But the thing is that uh, FreeBSD has its own place, but the reason why it has its own place is because the, first the users are fanatical. And then the developers. So are the fanatical. so are the Amiga users and Commodore C64 and Amstrad users and Sinclair users. So what's your point? But uh, the last uh, Sync- uh, Spectrum or C64 game came out this year, so I don't. My see, point I, exactly. <laughs> so, but FreeBSD is one of those things where you can you can have different spin-offs that are uh, of the original project. That are going to make any that are going to make a lot of sense for the for a particular group of users. I mean, there are people who are still actively developing games for C64. I can see, I can understand that. Of course, market of us middle-aged guys who don't have the money to buy Porsches and Harley Davidson is huge now, but C64 doesn't cost as much, so that's our favorite pastime. I don't think that this is it. I think this is one for those guys who think that Sudoku is boring but needs something to occupy their mind. I would agree with that. And, as well. I was uh, just and because I think that the the idea of a programming game for C64 today is not intended to be a game. It's intended just to be an exercise for you to play with. Okay, I'm happy with that as well. And this is something that is usually being done for people who uh, are just treating it as a hobby. Nobody's going to try to make money on a C64 game. Uh, no, I'm not so sure about that. There are people selling them, and I'm sure you are aware of the fact that there are C64 clones coming out left and right and center uh, that have been coming out for the past couple of years, and I don't know which one is better. And each and every next one is better than the previous one. There are like three or four of them right now. Commander X16, and there was that one that was FPGA-based that I have at home, etc. So there are three or four platforms running those games. People are loving them. They're very. Some of them are super expensive, actually. Yes, because the uh, the uh, production uh, runs are extremely low. Yeah. Uh, if you if you want to create something that's going to be as complicated as a clone that uh, needs to support both the old C sixty four and then the new hardware, and then you need to run it in the run that's going to be five hundred units or thousand units, this is going to be a hell of expensive. Yeah, eight bit guy YouTube. Yes. If you watch, yeah, he was heavily involved in the X16 design, so that that looks very promising. Actually, a lot of people have ordered them; they sold out quickly. So I'm guessing that there's still a market for that, just based on on the fact that all, all of those got sold like sold in a second. Okay. Okay. On that thing, we do we, should... do we have any other Unixes that we want to mention? Ikes. Um, no, I'm not going to go into specifics because I don't think that they are interesting when it comes to history. Okay. Uh, because what IBM did is they uh, used all the different flavors and all the different ideas from the Unix and they made it um, corporate. Okay. They created Still the kick-ass OS. Yes, but uh, I think that the main thing that IBM did is that they created... Uh, it's so it can be a real time or near real time. It can be a production operating system that you can rely on. And then they l- basically left it at it. They didn't. Nothing wrong with that if it works. Get, uh, that, that's completely okay. Because I would, I would guess a majority of banks are still running on those. Yeah, a lot of them are still running. So the power. Uh, Power-based. Yes, I, I would say. I would say majority. Yeah, I would say majority because since we still need cobble people. Yeah, for uh, reasons that are understandable. Yes. Not passing understanding. Yes. So uh, I think that AX and so on are just going to be things that are going to be with us for a long time. Can I ask you a question, and then we can close the episode? Yes. Are you gonna uh, file in your CV for the job in Germany to handle the railway-based MS-DOS systems? 
It, it, is, it wasn't MS-DOS. It was 311 uh, workgroups. Okay, sorry. I just mentioned... So it's, it's broken DOS, basically. Free, oh, sorry, workgroups worked rather well for me. Yes, but uh, it, it... Okay, come on. Come on. It, come come on. on. It, it, it was working for you. This is, this is good enough. Yeah. So telling it it worked is good. Um, yes, this is one of those things with legacy systems. Yeah, there, there are quite a few of them, and they're going to keep on reappearing in much greater, let's say, numbers in the next... 10 or 20 years because these legacy systems are not easily replaceable, just like COBOL that you mentioned, you know, and it's not like somebody is going to invent something out of thin air to run them in some kind of other environment. But they are uh, already appearing, but you are not considering them legacy. That's the problem. Okay. Uh, almost nobody understands or nobody sees that uh, it is completely normal right now to have a server that is running since 2010 mm -hmm. on Linux. It's running, I don't know, Ubuntu, whatever, five, four, whatever. Whatever. And, oh, no, sorry, Ubuntu, Debian, uh, five or four. And it is still in production. And then this computer can be considered ancient. Mm -hmm. It's 14 years since 2010. Mm -hmm. And this is just a legacy system, not a legacy system. Okay. Uh, if we were in 2000, this would be a computer that would be from the, uh, from the 80s. Mm-hmm. So we need to think about legacy systems and rethink what we are considering legacy systems. Okay. So timeline but, is important. Yes, timeline is important, and also the speed where uh, in which the technology is moving forward. Okay. Uh, what is happening is that the technology is slowing down, so legacy suddenly is not legacy. This is something that you can actually upgrade mm -hmm. because you can. Yeah. Okay. And I have uh, I have a sneaky suspicions that. Uh, uh, operating systems are going to be continuously slowing down their uh, development. Okay. And uh, I think that the main problem is going to be the hardware. So you're going to be just moving the virtual machines from one host to, to another, especially if a certain company decides to triple the cost. Uh, tenfold the cost. Tenfold the cost or hundredfold the cost and so on. So you're now suddenly in a place where you can actually uh, just move the virtual machines around and press play on different architectures. And this is going to continue. So okay. you're going to have even worse legacy systems. That sounds like heaven for us. We're going to go deep into our retirement, still learning money for you know maintaining the, that sort of stuff. I know that the oldest machine that I got to replace was 21 year old. Okay. And the oldest machine that was still running, and I didn't replace it because it was running a mission critical thing, was all, uh, it was running the uh, Windows Server 2003 mm -hmm. with the original version of whatever was the SQL version back way then, Seagate's version of the SQL. And uh, if I'm completely sure, I'm not sure if it isn't uh, still in production uh, to this day. I still have one machine with DOS in production and uh, the system that I replaced that's, that was ancient for me at the time in 2005 when I replaced it was based on novel network that was a topic uh, that's, that can be a topic of your bashing until the end of time. Um, this uh, 2003 server that is, that is running still uh, is still running the application in uh, Clipper. Okay. Clipper apps are not going to go away anytime soon as well. And it is trying to do it in, in a, some sort of networked uh, shared a shared drive that is being assigned if you remember the uh, if you remember the command mm -hmm. uh, to different uh, paths and so on so this is a hodgepodge job of trying to do a clutch on a patch on a bug but it is still something that runs in production so you need when you're talking about um, what is a legacy system nothing is Everything is. <laughs> Nothing is and everything is. Because if you do, uh, be honest to you, if you do a good job of uh, uh, creating a system and uh, configuring and installing something, mm -hmm. uh, you have created a legacy system because yes. it is going to be left uh, working for years and years. And then you're going to realize that suddenly that, I don't know, seven years has passed and you, you haven't logged in. Yeah. And I'm especially talking about things like DHCP servers, DNS servers, and so on. Yep. But I'm fine with that. Yes. But me too. Mm -hmm. But the thing is that these are also legacy systems. Okay. 
and they're all based on Unix. So let's finish <laughs> this thing with uh, this thing because okay. I, I haven't seen a legacy system that was working based on uh, Windows, unless there were either uh, Windows 2000 or uh, NT. Okay. Windows 2016 isn't considered legacy. It just reasons ugly head uh, every couple of years because it, it resets itself every update. But I still have a client running 2008 or 2 and 2003. Yes, but those are uh, those are the ones that did, don't do auto updates, so th they don't. Yeah, because they haven't had updates for ten years. Yes, but the thing <laughs> is that they are they are uh, not uh, letting themselves uh, known by just uh, simply going down for no particular <laughs> reason. Yeah, that's true. Okay, okay so Go thank ahead. you, thank you for this one. Uh, I'm Yasmin. This is Vedran. This has been the Dead ID Show. And see you in the next episode. I honestly have no idea what the episode is going to be about, but see you then. Okay. Bye. Bye.